Well, thanks for coming to our theological equipping class, uh, where we have been studying uh, church history all year. A few weeks ago, we talked about something that was called the Great Awakening, all right, this period of revival in the uh, early to mid-18th century, uh, led by guys like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and, uh, and John Wesley. Today, we want to talk about something that's called the Second Great Awakening. Now, sometimes a, uh, a sequel to a movie is uh, awesome. Sometimes it's even better than the original, all right? And so, uh, what are some great sequels? Empire Strikes Back, right? That's probably the greatest sequel of all time. What else? The Godfather Part Two, right? The Dark Knight, if you're a fan of the, the, the Batman series. The Terminator 2, Toy Story 2, right? These are some great sequels. Other times... You have sequels that aren't so great. What's a not-so-great sequel? <laughs> Land Before Time 2, is that what someone said? Yeah. Uh, ne- Never-ending Story 2, okay. Uh, I loved, personally, I loved The Matrix, right? I did not like Matrices 2 and uh, 3. We'll see about uh, 4 when it comes out, I think in a year or something. Or The Karate Kid, right? I love The Karate Kid. I did not like the fourth iteration of that called The Next Karate Kid, uh, it, was, uh, it was not uh, in the original spirit. So sometimes a sequel is great, sometimes a sequel is horrible. And uh, the second Great Awakening is to the first Great Awakening what uh, maybe the next Karate Kid is to the original Karate Kid. Not just some sort of a slightly inferior sequel, but uh, an insult to the uh, spirit of the original. By and large, the first Great Awakening was great, all right? So even the word great is in there. By and large, the first Great Awakening, the, the, uh, uh, the, the major players, the effects, uh, all of those kinds of things was, well, was pretty good, but the second was not. You might think of it as even second rate. That said, it's this really important cultural and uh, religious movement that exerted this profound influence on American culture in general and then in uh, American church culture in uh, particular. For instance, if you've ever gone to any sort of church or seen a church that advertised some sort of upcoming revival, that's a result of the Second Great Awakening. If you've ever seen this practice called an altar call, that's from the Second Great Awakening. If you grew up in a city with a First and Second Baptist Church and a First and Second Methodist Church, that's a result of the uh, Second Great Awakening. If you're familiar with parachurch ministries, by and large, that's a result of the Second Great Awakening. All of these are greatly influenced by, if not originated within, the context of the Second Great Awakening. So it's kind of a big deal. So let's uh, dive in together. Let's begin by defining what do we mean by a second great awakening. And from the beginning, we run into some complications because it's really kind of a, a nebulous uh, sort of movement. It's not like the Reformation. When we talk about the Reformation, we can typically uh, point to this watershed moment that takes place October 31st, 1517, when Luther takes these 95 theses and he nails it to the church door in Wittenberg and the Reformation is started. When we talk about the second great awakening, it's not like that. Kind of when it begins and when it ends is kind of nebulous, is kind of uh, ambiguous. So it's, it's more like trying to, if you were trying to delineate when are the Middle Ages, we kind of know when we're in the middle of them, but when they begin, when they end, all of those kinds of things uh, is a little bit more difficult. But in general, when we talk about the Second Great Awakening, we're talking about a period of time between about 1790 and 1840. So it begins roughly a generation after the First Great Awakening. If you remember, the First Great Awakening was about 1740, 1750s with Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, uh, and so forth. This is about a generation later. Now, what is it uh, that, that makes something an awakening? When we use the word awakening, what does that mean? Well, when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, which is called soteriology, we hold that there is a decisive moment in which you're actually converted, which you're actually regenerated, right? Even if you don't know the exact moment, like in my case, I can point to a, a month or two month period where I think that was when I was converted. Uh, so I might not be able to point to the exact moment, but theologically there is an exact moment and we call that regeneration or conversion. And then occasionally in history, in God's sovereignty, God will pour out his grace in such a way as to convert multiple people in the same approximate time and place. So think of the book of Acts. Think of Pentecost, right? 
the, the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit falls, and 3,000 people are converted in that moment. That's kind of this idea <coughs> of revival, this mass uh, reality of conversions taking place uh, in fairly quick uh, succession. So that's a revival. And then occasionally, there are a number of different revivals that take place within quick succession over a larger sort of geographical area, all right? You might think of it as kind of waves of revival lapping upon these multiple shores. And we call that an awakening, all right? So you have a conversion, that's one individual that's been regenerated. When there's a lot of conversions that take place around the same time and place, we call that a revival. When there's lots of revivals that take place uh, in the same time and place, we call that an awakening. So the first great awakening was in the mid-18th century, and that mostly consisted of New England. Remember, at this time, America is not America. Uh, it's still uh, British colonies, and most of America is not populated. Uh, and so it takes place uh, mostly in the uh, New England area. And the second is going to be a generation later in the late 18th, early 19th century, and it's going to cover most of the populated U.S. at the time, which will have spread out quite a bit uh, from the time of the First Great Awakening. Now, to understand the Second Great Awakening, we need to really consider the, the context, the historical uh, context. As you can imagine, a lot has changed between 1740 and the 1790s, all right? Give me one thing that's changed between 1740 and 1790. America, right? It's become its own country. So one of the really biggest uh, 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 con contextual things to know is that a bunch of colonies had revolted against the greatest superpower at the time and formed this new country called America, right? And uh, so that's this really huge thing. What else had happened in the latter half of the 18th century? Well, there was a need to rebuild from the war. Certainly 18th century warfare wasn't nearly as destructive as modern warfare, but nonetheless, uh, America is going to need to uh, rebuild as a result of the, uh, of the war. In addition to that, there's this staggering inflation that takes place. All right, you might think things are uh, somewhat bad today. Well, there were estimates uh, that inflation was as high as 30% in the months following uh, the Revolutionary War. On top of that, you also have this drive to populate the lands that are west of the Appalachians. This is, becomes this huge concern. Before the war, war, there was very little effort to push the boundaries of the frontier, but after the war, this actually becomes a really driving desire uh, in the country. So people are moving into Kentucky, and they're moving into Tennessee, and they're moving into uh, Ohio, this land that was called the land beyond the Sabbath. No offense if you're from that area, but uh, that's what's happening. The problem is that there are no churches. There's no established churches. There are no seminaries at that time in those areas, the land beyond the Sabbath, because it's wilderness, it's frontier. So all of these factors kind of converge together uh, with the result being that by the 1790s, only about 5 to 10% of the population uh, in the U.S. belonged to a local church. And that's really crazy considering that just one generation before, that number would have been about eight to nine times uh, higher. So there was this dullness in the country. There was this spiritual apathy. There's this lethargy in the religious condition of the new country. People are busy doing these other things. They're pushing the, the boundaries of the frontier. They're rebuilding. They're trying to get their economy up and running, all of these sorts of things. And that all begins to change in the 1790s with what's called the Second Great Awakening. Now, when we talk about the First Great Awakening, we generally talk about three main characters. Who are those three main characters? I've already mentioned them before. Jonathan Edwards, George something, George Whitfield, and another John, John Wesley, right? So there's three main characters that we talk about in the First Great Awakening. There's certainly a supporting cast, but those are the three main guys. Kind of similarly, when we talk about the Second Great Awakening, there are th at least three different movements, three different kind of waves or arenas in which this, uh, this awakening is taking place. These are revivals are, are taking place. This is kind of painting with a broad stroke, but I think it's helpful to see these three different contexts. The first one was in New England, similar to the, uh, the First Great Awakening. The second phase was on the frontier, and the third is related to the ministry of one particular man named Charles Finney, and we'll talk about each of those uh, in turn. So let's begin with phase one in New England, all right? As you recall, New England is the site of the original, the Great Awakening, guys like Jonathan Edwards, 
And Edwards has a grandson. His name is Timothy Dwight. You have a picture of him there in, uh, in your notes. In 1795, Dwight becomes president of Yale University. Yale at this time is about 100 years old. Uh, if you remember, it was established as a, uh, a Christian university for the founding of minister, ministers and so forth. Uh, but by 1795, there is nearly no Christian presence at the school at all. All right, that's not being hyperbolic. Uh, Timothy Dwight would say there are almost, if not any, the, uh, there are almost no uh, Christians at the school. Nearly everyone at this point has become infatuated with certain philosophical ideas, especially from France, right? As, as French ideas of, of democracy and so forth is what kind of stirs the revolution, so these uh, French philosophical theological ideas that you see in the French Enlightenment is going to uh, erupt at Yale. And so kind of the prevailing view is not Orthodox Christianity, instead it is theological deism. A lot of our founding fathers were deists, which is kind of this idea of God as being distant and removed and it denies all the supernatural aspects of Christianity. But Dwight is going to take over as president at Yale and he's going to begin to preach the gospel. And as a result of his preaching, some one-third of the student body is going to profess faith, a number of them becoming uh, ministers. And this revival is going to spread beyond uh, Yale for a, uh, for a number of years. Now, this realm of the awakening was quite similar to the first awakening. It was theologically conservative. It was actually even Calvinistic. It was connected to qualified ministers. It was uh, connected to qualified professors. It was connected to uh, the university and to churches uh, and so forth. But as we'll see, the other two streams of the awakening are not so good. We'll talk about phase two. Phase two begins with a guy named James uh, McGrady. He's a Presbyterian minister in the OC, Orange County, North Carolina. And in 1796, McGrady packs up and he moves from North Carolina, he moves to Logan County, Kentucky. And he immediately begins to earnestly preach and pray for conversions and, uh, and revival. And then by 1800, that prayer is actually answered. Revival is breaking out there in, uh, in Kentucky. Now, what kind of name is McGrady? Kind of, what ethnicity would you think he is? Scottish, right? That's absolutely correct, right? Uh, and uh, the fact that he was Presbyterian also kind of gives that away. The, the Scotch uh, have, a, uh, have a history with uh, uh, Presbyterianism. And uh, the Scotch Presbyterians had this tradition back home in Scotland, and it was called communion seasons. Communion seasons. Uh, they were these multiple day meetings of a church where they would have worship, they would have sermons, they would have all of these sorts of things. And then at the end of the two days or the three days of the week or whatever it might be, they would have a Lord's Supper. That's why they're called communion uh, seasons. And, uh, and so McGrady begins to implement this tradition in Kentucky with the arrangement of what uh, were eventually called camp meetings. They are these multiple day long uh, church services. And it's actually working. Revival is breaking out, not only in Kentucky, but in neighboring Tennessee as well. And one of the attendees of one of these camp meetings was a guy named Barton Stone. And Barton Stone at the time is a Presbyterian minister of a congregation in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Right? And so Stone, he goes to one of these uh, things that uh, McGrady has hosted. He likes it. He says, I want to take this back to my uh, context. And so does, uh, Stone decides to host a little communion season of his own in Cane Ridge. And by little, I mean it's estimated that 20,000 people descended on this little town. Now, who are these people? All right. Well, they're frontier people. They're generally less educated, generally more unruly. All right. Think uh, fans of Texas Tech or something like that. That's kind of who these people are, probably fans of Florida Georgia Line and those sorts of things. And things really get out of hand quite quickly. There's partying, there's excessive drinking, which you might expect since Cane Ridge uh, is in Bourbon County, Kentucky. And some critics of the revival went so far as to claim that as many souls were conceived as were convert, uh, converted at Cane Ridge. This is 1801, the Cane Ridge Revival. You have a picture there that is kind of showing that uh, camp meeting sort of spirit. So guys are preaching, and people are responding, but they're responding in these really, really strange ways. Some of them are afflicted with uh, uncontrollable laughter, 
You saw the movie The Joker, like Joaquin Phoenix's condition in that. Others are trembling, they're shaking. Some just kind of run around in circles nonstop, like my kids. Some fall down as though they're dead. Others uh, start this uh, thing called barking at the devil. They literally just start barking at the devil to kind of tree him up or something like that. And so it's chaos. Uh, It's like an early Woodstock or Lollapalooza or something like that. So as you can imagine, if you know anything about Presbyterians, the Presbyterians are freaked out, right? This is completely unruly and Presbyterians don't do unruly, right? Uh, They're thinking this is disorderly. I don't see barking at the devil in the Bible, so we're out. But the Baptists and the Methodists are like people actually like us. And so this is the greatest thing ever. And so the thing begins to, uh, to take off with some uh, hundreds of uh, these sorts of revivals per year, these camp meeting revivals. And Baptists and Methodists take this camp meeting idea and they run with it. They run mostly south and, uh, and west. This is why if you grew up in a town in the south, they probably had two or three Baptist churches They probably had two or three Methodist churches, but they might have only had one or two total other churches, right? There's this predominance of Methodism and uh, and Baptist traditions in the South and in the the frontier uh, as a result of this. In fact, by the 1830s, the Methodists and the Baptists had replaced the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians as the largest denominations in the U.S., to understand that, you really need to understand something about Methodist circuit riders, which is a huge part of the Second Great Awakening. We'll begin with maybe the most famous of all the circuit riders. His name is Francis Asbury. If you've ever heard of Asbury University or Asbury Theological Seminary, both of those are Methodist institutions in Kentucky. Both of those are named for Francis Asbury, who lived from 1745 to 1816. You have a picture of him there in your notes, a dapper young man there. He's born in Birmingham, England, and his parents are followers of John Wesley. And Francis is converted at the age of 13, and he begins to preach three years later. By the way, this is a pattern that you'll see, especially among the Baptists and among the Methodists. How is it that they grow so quickly? Well, they're much more willing to send out these rather uneducated, untrained, and in many ways unequipped uh, ministers. Uh, So uh, Asbury begins to preach when he's about 16 years old. In 1771, when Asbury is 26, John Wesley says, I need volunteers to go over to uh, the the colonies, to colonial America, and uh, and preach the gospel, and Asbury uh, volunteers. So he crosses the Atlantic, and he will spend the rest of his life ministering there. It's estimated that he uh, traveled some 300,000 miles on horseback. Probably saw more of the American countryside than any one of his generation. But ministry for Asbury wasn't easy at first. Why not? Well, hint, think about the date. He goes over there in 1771. This is the early 70s. So what's happening at the time? Well, the American colonials, they're not all that keen on Britain. And at this point, Methodists have this historic association with the Church of England. So there, there is some suspicion about Methodist ministers there in, uh, in the, uh, the colonies. But Asbury is going to, and in fact, by, uh, by in 1775, all the Methodist mi- uh, missionaries actually leave the colonies except for Asbury. He's the only one who actually uh, remains in the colonies. Everybody else returns to England. But Asbury stayed, and he eventually kind of wins over the people. And he's committed to winning over the people by ministering to those who have no ministers. So this is part of the Methodist strategy at the, at the time. And in order to do this, in order to minister to these people who don't have any sort of uh, existing uh, ministers, they employed what are called circuit riders, right? So in those days, a small town might not be able to employ their own minister. So instead, what would happen is this Methodist minister might have these handful of congregations that uh, he oversaw on a circuit. And so he would simply ride from church to church, preaching and teaching. He would spend various seasons. Some circuits might take as long as six months uh, to complete. He would stay for a week in an area or two weeks in an area or whatever it, uh, it might be. And this becomes this uh, American phenomenon. It's kind of like the, the U.S. Postal Service, right? Neither rain nor sleet nor hail. This was kind of the idea of the circuit rider. In fact, there was a saying on days of particularly bad weather, there's nothing out today but crows and Methodists, all right? And so this is because of the circuit riders and what they are doing. And this is not only Francis Asbury, but it's other guys. Peter Cartwright, 
this big hoss of a man who was known on more than one occasion to take off his jacket during a sermon, step down off the stage, and personally, quote, handle a disturbance in the audience. It's like Zach's dream, all right? I didn't find a good picture of him, so I found another famous Cartwright. He probably looks like that. So this system, this system, by the way, Zach and Tim will make fun of me for a dated old reference there. This system, though, of circuit riders allowed the Methodists to go where most others could not, right? They could go areas where there weren't existing churches, where there weren't existing seminaries, whatever. Uh, And so the effect of this was dramatic. When he first came in 1771, there were four Methodist ministers in the colonies, and they were caring for about 300 persons, right? So in all the colonies, the Methodist uh, population, four Methodist ministers uh, caring for over th- about 300 per, uh, people. When he died in 1816, there were 2,000 Methodist ministers and over 200,000 Methodists. That's just in the States. There were several thousand more in Canada. By the 1840s, as a result of this circuit rider sort of strategy, by the 1840s, there were over one million Methodists and 4,000 ministers. So in 1775, fewer than one out of every 800 Americans was a Methodist. By 1812, that had risen to about one uh, of every 36 Americans, from one out of 800 to one out of every 36. Now, an advantage, as mentioned, was that Methodists didn't have this elaborate ordination process like the Presbyterians or uh, others. They had more of a kind of a raise your hand if you're willing to go and you want to be a minister sort of approach, as did, uh, as did the Baptists. What's interesting is that it, this historic Baptist tradition is both Calvinistic and it's confessional. All right, so if you look at the early roots of the Baptist uh, uh, tradition, it's Calvinistic, it's confessional, they had confessions. Maybe you've heard of the 1680 London Confession or the uh, 1833 New Hampshire Confession. So originally, Baptist theology was really rich, it was really uh, robust, uh, their tradition, their theology, but it spreads a bit too quickly. It kind of extends itself a little bit uh, too quickly uh, in a sense that uh, they, they send out all of these unprepared, unequipped ministers. And by the Civil War, you have, a much, more, uh, you have much more of the anti-confessional, no creed but the Bible, non-Calvinistic, uh, non-confessional uh, Baptist philosophy that you often see today. So that's a result of some of the influences of the Second Great Awakening. But all of this helps explain why those two groups, the Methodists and the Baptists, had such dramatic growth during the Second Great Awakening and immediately thereafter. While others, like the Presbyterians, have this bureaucratic process of education and ordination and so forth, the Baptists and Methodists were much more willing to kind of lower the bar. Now, don't don't get me wrong. When I say lower the bar, Uh, these were incredibly brave men that they were sending out. For instance, nearly half of those who served as circuit riders died before the age of 30, right? It was so rigorous, it was so strenuous upon the body, so taxing physically and spiritually. So they were men of courage. They were often men of really good character. They're just not very theologically adept, and that's a problem because that is far and away the predominant command of the pastoral epistles. But this is the second phase of the, uh, the awakening, the frontier camp meetings, and, uh, and out of that, the, the, the Baptist and uh, Methodist itinerant or bivocational uh, ministers going around through the, uh, the frontier. So let's talk about phase three, which was absolutely the worst uh, phase of the Great Awakening and what most people think of when they think of the Second Great Awakening, at least what they should think of. If you think of the first phase, again, not the first awakening, but the first phase of the Second Great Awakening, it was largely theological, it was largely Calvinistic. The second was kind of theologically light, and it was Arminian, it was non-Calvinistic. By the third, it's actually anti-theological, anti-intellectual, and actually Pelagian, right? So the first one is theologically heavy, Calvinistic, the second theologically light, Arminian, the third anti-theological, and actually Pelagian, all right? We'll talk about that. When we talk about the third phase of the Second Great Awakening, we mostly mean the ministry of one singular individual named Charles Grandison Finney. Raise your hand if you've heard of Charles Finney, all right? He lived from 1792 to 1865. Now, to many people, to many Christians, uh, Charles Finney is seen as this hero, 
all right? Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell, both of them spoke of him in that manner. And let me offer a slightly more nuanced uh, perspective, all right? I don't think Finney was a hero. I think he was a heretic, right? That's my slightly more nuanced perspective. He was the Toby Flinderson of, uh, of evangelists. He's the worst, right? But at least he was a looker. Look, I mean, look at that picture, all right? He was not a good, guy, uh, a good guy, but he was super influential, so let's talk about him. Like a lot of pastors, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jeff Ashley, uh, Finney originally studied to be a lawyer, and, uh, and, uh, and so he originally studied to be a lawyer. In fact, he was actually admitted to the New York Bar in 1818, and he practiced law for a few years, but then in October of 1821, Finney experienced what he considered his conversion experience. And so immediately he determined to give up the law and devote himself to ministry. And by immediately, I mean the very day, all right? The very next day he sees a client who reminds him of a trial later that afternoon and Finney responds, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ to plead his cause and I cannot plead yours, all right? That sums up for me a lot of Finney, all right? It sounds super spiritual, and yet it kind of stinks for that guy who was counting on him to be his lawyer that day in court. And, uh, and so, again, I don't like uh, Finney. Now, notice again what happens. He gets converted, and then he immediately starts preaching, right? He wants to be a minister, but he absolutely refuses to go to seminary. And he despises Calvinism. And he despises the Westminster Confession, to which he's actually obligated as a Presbyterian. So he won't go to seminary, but he does become an apprentice, this pastoral resident, uh, this Jared Lawson, if you will. And nearly all of his training comes from these itinerant preachers who would travel around through the frontier of northern uh, New York. And when he finishes his apprenticeship, he starts preaching. He starts preaching these revivals throughout upstate New York, in Rochester, in Rome, in Utica, what was called the, quote, burned over district because so many fires of revival had spread through there over the years that it was said to be burned over. That was kind of the imagery. So he starts to gain notice for preaching in these revivals throughout uh, upstate New York, but he also uh, has a bit of controversy. In particular, there are concerns about some of his, quote, new measures. That's what he called them, new measures. What are his new measures? Well, Finney was really this pioneer of the idea of revivalism. He's not the pioneer of revivals. Revivals have been happening throughout history, but he's the pioneer of revivalism. And he began to, uh, to, to develop or adapt a, a number of these new revival, quote, techniques. For example, he was known for very theatrical preaching. He was, uh, he was accused of using coarse language during his sermons. He would even attack local ministers in his preaching. He would call them out uh, by name. He would even call out people by name if he knew of, uh, of things that they needed to repent of. So he would call you out if you're sitting in the congregation and he knows of a particular sin that you struggle with, he would call you out by name during his uh, sermons. He also develops this idea that's called the anxious seat. It's kind of an early prelude, an early uh, forerunner to the altar call in which people who felt convicted, people who felt anxious as a result of the preaching would come forward. They would sit on the front row if they felt convicted during the sermon to make it kind of easier for them to respond at the end. He also pushed the idea of what, what were called protracted meetings, right? Church services that would go on all day. They would take a break at night and then they'd just start up again the next night. What you see in all of these new measures and all of these, quote, techniques is an attempt to psychologically break down the resistance of the congregants. Think of like a, a, a captor uh, that keeps a prisoner up all night long before an interrogation, right? What's the purpose of that? What's to break him down psychologically? That's what Finney thought the role of a preacher was. The preacher is to rely on these psychological techniques to kind of break down the defenses of the hearer. And to really understand why it was that he was given to these new measures, these, uh, these techniques, we need to understand why I don't like Finney. It's not because of the techniques, it's because of the underlying presuppositions uh, that led to those measures. You see, for Finney, and this is a quote, a revival is the result of the right use of the appropriate means. For Finney, a revival is the result of the right use of the appropriate means. In other words, it's a science. There's a recipe to it. It's like cooking. You follow the same recipe under the same conditions, you get the same results. 
In other words, he took the miracle out of it. In fact, he explicitly said, it is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. So if the preacher will only turn his volume up past a 10, to an 11, if he'll say the right words, if he has the right setting and the right uh, techniques, if he'll turn the lights to a particular thing and raise the sound and do the right thing with the choir, whatever it might be, if he'll do the right things, then Finney thinks God is obligated to give the right result, which is why he could plan for revival. I don't know if you ever found that to be somewhat strange. As a kid, you, you, you go by this church saying they're going to have a revival next week, and you think, that's kind of strange. I thought John 3 says, nobody knows where the Spirit's going. You can't predict where he's going or what he's going to do. And uh, so how are they so sure that he's going to show up Sunday at 7 p.m., right? In the first Great Awakening, we saw Edwards thought of a revival as this surprising work of God. Not for Finney, he's not surprised at all. You can plan it, you can announce it, you can even put it on your calendar for Finney. Why did he think about that? Let's talk about his theology and why I say that he's a heretic, heretic and not a hero. As you recall, or you may recall, the historic orthodox view of the will, uh, the will and the freedom of the will was developed by Augustine, and he holds the idea that man is free, he's free to do that which he loves. But at the same time, his loves are bound by sin. That's what he loves. Sin has so affected the totality of man that he loves sin. So man cannot and will not choose anything but sin. And Augustine's view is opposed by a guy named Pelagius. And Pelagius denies original sin. He maintains that the will is absolutely free, all right? That the will is not under compulsion from nature or anything else. Uh, and that view was consistently rejected by the church. Pelagius' view was rejected by the church. Pelagius was called uh, a heretic, all right? He was condemned, all right? That's not just a simple misunderstanding. That's not a peripheral uh, false teaching. That's an actual heresy. That's a first order heresy. It makes man the author of his salvation. At the end of the day, it means you are the author of your salvation and not God. So that's Pelagius. And that was Finney's view, right? Finney was Pelagian. So sinners weren't prevented by nature from coming to Christ. The only obstacle is your personal reluctance and your indifference. Therefore, the goal of the preacher, according to Finney, is to just simply overcome these psychological inhibitions and to persuade the will by piling on these enticements, right? Unlike the first great awakening, whose fires were lit by Edwards when he preaches a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Finney actually wrote a book called Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. That's a big difference, right? But that's what uh, regeneration was to Finney. Regeneration, conversion, was not a miraculous work of the spirit. It's an obligatory work of man, Conversion is simply the, uh, the, the, the sinner changing his choices and changing his preferences. So he writes of conversion, that uh, conversion is not a change in substance of soul or body. If it were, sinners would, uh, could not be required to affect it. Such a change would not constitute a change of moral character. No such change is needed as the sinner has all the faculties and natural abilities requisite to render perfect obedience to God. All he needs is to be induced to use these powers and attributes as he ought. Now notice that phrase, perfect obedience. That's another of Finney's heresies. He denies the historic view of justification. For sinners to be forensically pronounced just uh, is impossible and absurd. This is a quote by Finney. For sinners to be forensically pronounced just and, uh, is impossible and absurd. There can be no justification in a legal, legal or forensic sense, but upon the ground of universal, perfect, and uninterrupted obedience to law. Another quote, the Christian therefore is justified no longer than he obeys and must be condemned when he disobeys. Notice that. When you disobey, you are condemned. You stand under condemnation. It is not until you repent of that that you can be re-justified. In these respects, then, 
the sinning Christian and the unconverted sinner are, on, uh, are upon precisely the same ground. Or again, but can he be pardoned and accepted and justified in the gospel sense while sin, any degree of sin, remains in him? Certainly not. So Finney hates this Protestant idea of simul justus et peccador, that Christians are simultaneously justified and yet also still sinners. He said of this uh, doctrine, simul justus et peccador, he says, this error has slain more souls, I fear, than all the, that, uh, than all the universal, uh, universalism that ever cursed the world. For him, God demands absolute perfection. Now, we would hear that, we would say, yes, amen, God does demand absolute perfection. Perfection. We actually agree with that. God demands perfection. But we say that our perfection isn't our own, but Christ. It's imputed to us by Christ, in Christ. But Finney says that perfection is attained through our free will and through obedience. It isn't imputed to us, it is earned by us. Salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, but on the basis of works. And this then leads him to reject substitutionary Atonement. So he writes, if he, that's Christ, had obeyed the law as our substitute, then why should our own return to personal obedience be insisted upon as a sine qua non of our salvation? That's actually a great question, all right? He's so close to the truth if he will just embrace it, but instead he goes off into heresy. That's a really good question. If uh, Christ is obeyed, then why do we have to perfectly obey? And instead of seeing the reality that we don't, he instead is going to jettison the idea of Christ as our substitute. He doesn't get the answer right. Rather than realizing that justification isn't by our works, he simply dismisses just uh, substitution. He says the atonement of itself does not secure the salvation of anyone. So if Adam leads us into sin, not by our inheriting his guilt and corruption, that's the Pelagian view, but rather by providing an example that we imitate, this is going to be mirrored in Finney's view of the atonement, all right? As we didn't inherit Adam's disobedience, so we don't inherit Christ's obedience. Rather, Christ saves us by simply providing an example. This is called the governmental theory of the atonement. Christ's death was a demonstration of God's willingness to forgive sins rather than a payment for sin. So you can see how your homartiology, that is your doctrine of sin, affects your soteriology, that is your doctrine of salvation. And that then affects your actual practice, whether you do altar calls or not, or whether a preacher screams or not, or whether you rely upon lights and smoke and lasers in your worship, all right? That isn't just personal preference. Those are all based on theological and philosophical presuppositions, all right? I'm not saying that all of those things are bad. I'm just saying, uh, I'm just trying to say that you can see a lot about what a preacher or a church believes by what they practice. So in looking at at Finney, you see actual works righteousness. We're saved by the law. Ironically, Finney gave up a career in law for the gospel only to end up mixing up law and gospel. As you, uh, as you might say, you can, uh, you can take Finney out of the law, you can't take the law out of Finney. And for all of these reasons, I said Finney is no hero, he was a heretic. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton professor who was a big uh, opponent of the Second Great Awakening, uh, that uh, came, uh, came around ju- just on the latter part of it. He best summed up Finney's views when he observed that you could remove God from it and it would not change much of anything. You could remove God from Finney's equation and it wouldn't change much of anything. Or as Michael Horton notes, Charles Finney, the revivalist of the last century, is a patron saint for most evangelicals and yet he denied original sin, the substitutionary atonement, justification, and the need for regeneration by the Holy Spirit. In short, Finney was Pelagian. As an aside, in my research, I found a bunch of other weird stuff about Finney. I wasn't sure where to mention it, so I'll just list it out here. A few other weird stuff, uh, views of Finney. He was a believer in the temperance movement to abolish alcohol. He was a proponent of uh, of, uh, pure pacifism. He was a Sabbatarian. He thought that Christians are still under the law of the Sabbath. He was into phrenology, you know, phrenology, the study of the size and the shape of the skull as an indicator of your character or gifting. He was a believer in the Graham diet. You might not be familiar with this, named after Sylvester Graham, 
the father of American vegeta- uh, vegetarianism and the inventor of what? The graham cracker, all right? Lastly, one positive about uh, Finney. I say if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Here's the one thing that I'll say about Finney that was good is he was an abolitionist. He opposed slavery, so applaud him for that. Now, as you can imagine, by denying, I don't know, most of what makes Protestants Protestants, uh, Finney caused quite a bit of controversy even in his day. His opponents included guys like uh, uh, Mr. Nettleton who was pro-revival, pro-revival but from a reform perspective. So he advocated for what uh, was called a machinery-less, machinery-less evangelism. By machinery, he meant these various new measures. And guys like John Williamson Nevin, who wrote a book uh, called The Anxious Bench, where he says, spurious revivals are common, and as the fruit of them, false conversions lamentably uh, abound. An anxious bench may be crowded where no divine influence whatever is felt. Hundreds may be carried through the process of ancient bench conversion, and yet their last state may be worse than the first. Right now, Nevin's concern isn't the anxious bench. Nevin's concern isn't the altar call. Rather, his concern is putting any sort of hope in coming forward, putting any sort of hope in the altar call or hope in the anxious bench. His concern is thinking that walking an aisle or praying a prayer is what makes you a Christian or that God somehow owes you. If you walk down the aisle, that God owes you something or that walking the aisle is the best standard for assessing if someone is a believer. If you ask someone, how do you know you're a believer? And they said, well, I walked an aisle. That's not a good reason for you to think that you're a believer. So this controversy over Finney's measures even ends up splitting the Presbyterian church. Those who supported the new measures were called the new side Presbyterians. Those who criticized were called the old side. Those were uh, represented by uh, Princeton Seminary. And, uh, and guys like Charles Hodge and later B.B. Warfield. So there were lots of criticisms, and Feeney's response to those criticisms was, well, it works, all right? In other words, he was pragmatic. He was a, a believer in pragmatism. And because it works, Finney becomes one of the most important public figures of the 19th century, all right? He's oftentimes listed in a top 10 list with guys like Lincoln and, uh, and so forth, one of the most important public figures in the 19th century because his theological, his philosophical ideas so permeate the American culture. Think about how similar his theology is to the idea of this rugged American individualism, right? The theology of Finney uh, and the aspects of the awakening that are associated with his influence were in many ways, they were paradigmatic of the, uh, the antebellum era, right? This, this, this era of individual determinism, this pull yourselves up by your bootstraps sort of pop theology, that's kind of influenced by uh, Finney. So let's end by talking about the results of the awakening, some pros and cons. Again, remember, there are three different arenas. We shouldn't only think of Finney or only think of the frontier. It's, really, it's a really amorphous movement that lasts for about 50 years. There's heroes, there's heretics, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot that happens, some of it good, some of it bad. Don't, don't paint everybody with the same sort of brush. But what were the results of the awakening? Number one, there were actual conversions, all right? There are lots of spurious revivals. There's lots of fake works of the Spirit. There's a lot of just law instead of gospel, but there are also genuine conversions. Many people estimate, uh, estimate that, about a f- uh, that a few hundred thousand people were converted. And with it, there's this settled conviction in American theology of the doctrine of conversion. Even if uh, Finney and we would define conversion in very different ways, we both agree that conversion is necessary. If you recall, that's something that's being debated in the first uh, Great Awakening, all right? By the second Great Awakening, the necessity of conversion is the dominant assumption of American Christianity. Number two, second result of the awakening, there are a whole lot of of societies or what we would today call parachurch ministries that are founded as a result. A few of those, you might have heard of some of these, the American Bible Society, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. If you remember Jared's sermon or teaching on the modern missionary movement, the first missionary that's sent out by this group was Adoniram Judson. So to a large degree, the modern missions movement is influenced by the awakening. The American Colonization Society for Freed Slaves, the American Society for the Promotion of Temperance, 
or the, uh, the abolition of alcohol, all right? So abolitionism, the later, uh, what will later uh, blossom into prohibition, those roots are laid here. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, you see a lot of uh, kind of the initial stages of feminism and so forth here. The American Sunday School Union, the American Tract Society, the American Education Society, the American Home Missionary Society, et cetera. So the, you see this explosion of non-congregational institutional Christianity as a result of the Second Great Awakening. You also see this sort of general dumbing down of Christianity. That's partly a result of the awakening. What's the caricature of Christians today in the media? All right, we're backwoods, we're ignorant, we're these sort of bumbling idiots. Now, to be fair, some of us are those things, but historically, that's not the general stereotype of Christianity. For most of Western culture, Christians were actually the leading thinkers in not only theology, but also philosophy and ethics and science and art, etc. But during the awakening, Christianity becomes more and more emotional. It becomes much less intellectual. Eventually, it even becomes suspicious of the mind and it becomes anti-intellectual. So the first line, we've mentioned this before, of Mark Knowles' book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind is uh, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't one. That's partially due to this sort of heart overhead mentality of the awakening and the reality of these ill-trained pastors and missionaries on the uh, frontier battle lines. Fourth result, there's 12 of these total. Obviously, we see the rise of revivalism and especially the manipulative techniques that are associated with Finney and that will later influence guys, some of them even pretty good, Guys like D.A. Moody, Billy Graham, and Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was this revivalist who was a former baseball player. He used to do things like slide across the stage uh, uh, to make some sort of point. I don't know what that point is, but uh, I'll probably try that someday. Uh, if you ever attended a church where the pastor, um, uh, you know, kind of bring a tank on stage or a car on stage or, you know, uh, start up a chainsaw or something like that, whatever, all of those things I've seen, by the way. Uh, have you ever been in a church where a pastor did those kind of things or they give away a car? That's a grandchild of the awakening, the assumption that the goal isn't so much to be faithful to Scripture and to kind of beg the Spirit to move, but rather that your goal is to persuade, to convince men's free will through thought, psychological means. That's a result of the Great Awakening. You also see the spread of Arminian theology, Right? Today, most uh, evangelicals, especially in America, wouldn't be considered Calvinists, but that's not true for the early Reformation. But along with the rise of revivalism is a rise in the understanding of man's freedom. That's Pelagian at worst, Arminian at, uh, at best. In fact, a common Methodist saying of the time was, when I was blind, I could not see, the Calvinists deceived me. All right, so when preachers chose which enemies to rebuke in the Second Great Awakening, there were two that everyone, you would always get an amen for. If you rebuke Satan and you rebuke Calvin, all right? Those are the two things in the Second Great Awakening. You know you could always get an amen for. And that changes the underlying assumptions of American theologically dramatically. You also see the Christianization of America. This is a really huge result. Unlike in places where, uh, like France, where you have Enlightenment philosophy and it turns the country very quickly into this sort of secular wasteland that we see today, that slide uh, of America is delayed by at least 100 years in the U.S. All right, so the, the awakening is kind of like this booster shot that kind of inoculated the country for a couple of generations to the slide into secularity and paganism that comes with Enlightenment philosophy. By the way, that booster shot, you'll probably notice, uh, is, uh, is starting to, uh, to wear off over the past couple of, uh, of decades. But along with the Christianization of America, a seventh uh, result is you also see the democratization of Christianity. You see this move away from creeds, this move away from confessions, this move toward this more self-reliant, choose your own adventure, choose your own denomination, choose your own individual belief, this rugged individualism view of faith. The awakening is greatly responsible for the highly individualistic, consumeristic Christianity that plagues the U.S. today. You also see the split of denominations. For instance, as mentioned, the Presbyterian church split over the issue of, uh, of the old side or the new side, the historically Calvinistic, the more Arminian. You see the creation of new denominations, all right? One of the most famous is related to Barton Stone. We mentioned earlier, he's the guy who started the Cane Ridge Revival in uh, 1801. He later uh, started his own denomination, 
which splintered into the churches of Christ, the disciples of Christ, and other groups. The irony of it is that Barton's original goal was to get beyond denominational fighting. He says all the denominations are wrong. They shouldn't be fighting about these sorts of things. We should just be one church of Christians. That's why they called themselves just the Church of Christ or the Disciples of Christ. So in his efforts, ironically, to unify Christians, he actually just creates another splinter group, uh, another denomination. Number 10, you see the rise of various cults during this time. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, so forth, have their roots here. That comes with this rugged individualism. Once you've already said that the boundaries for belief aren't that important, who's to kind of stop pioneers from not just starting their own denomination, but their own religion to go completely beyond the bounds of orthodoxy? You see the preparation of the soul for liberal theology. A lot of the willingness of guys like Finney to adjust their theological convictions with birth out of this idea that unless you're willing to change Christianity, you won't be able to defend it against secular assault. There is always this assumption that you see throughout uh, history that some people think the only way that you can protect the gospel is if you change it, all right? So this is why most uh, denominations uh, had been engulfed by liberalism by the early 20th century, all right? They had so uh, uh, morphed and, and changed Christianity. A lot of that has to do with the assumptions of the Second Great Awakening. And then lastly, you see the idea that's called the benevolent empire, this renewed interest in applying the gospel to social issues. This is at times good, at other times it's not so good. On the positive side, there's a desire to apply the gospel to these social ills like prostitution and, uh, and slavery. On the negative side, there's this legalistic push to deal with drunkenness by simply advocating for prohibition. On the maybe good, maybe bad, I'm not sure where to put this, this is also when there's this huge push to end the, proce- uh, the practice of dueling Personally, I wish we could settle things with a good pistol battle, but Finney takes not only the gospel, but also our guns, and uh, that's the second great awakening. Let's pray, and then we'll probably have time for uh, one or two questions or so. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for um, some of the benefits that we see in, uh, in the second great awakening. We're grateful for certainly some of the uh, the benefits you see, especially in the, the, the Northeast with the New England uh, aspect of it, we're grateful that the gospel goes forth, even if it's a somewhat modified gospel, even if some of the techniques we wouldn't agree with, that there are still genuine conversions that take place. We're grateful for the fact that as a result of the Second Great Awakening, the, uh, the America that we have inherited, by and large, has been greatly influenced by Christianity. And, uh, and so we're grateful for that reality and, uh, and pray that uh, as we look to the future that we wouldn't make some of the same mistakes. And so uh, we love you. We pray that you would help us as we transition from here into a time of, uh, of further worship. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.